Welcome back to the fundmonitors.com manager insights series. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Wu, the executive director at Premium China Funds Management. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Damon. Um, Jonathan, the last 12 months has seen Asian equities underperforming broader global markets with the Asia X Japan Index underperforming the MSCI and the S&P 500, especially in the last six months. Um, is, do you think this is a result of short-term issues such as um, Evergrande or is it a longer-term trend? Is, is this something that has been happening for a while? Yeah, it's um, it's a very good question, Damon. I mean, with regards to the, the gl broader global market dynamic, um, we're sort of seeing a, really a tale of two cities. You've got effectively developed market equities trading at you know all-time record highs, um, and then obviously the the inflation narrative has been sort of you know guided some level of volatility um, that we've seen in, in since the beginning of this year, I guess. With China, um, you know, they had embarked uh, quite uniquely, I guess, throughout COVID. Um, they started embarking on a tightening cycle, which to many people's surprise. Now, that's not necessarily a surprise to us because they were very focused on taking a lot of heat out of the economy. And when COVID came around, they had certainly learned their lessons from, you know, the GFC when, you know, the whole world was going through such major challenges. And that was a, a broad scale event rather than a, a medical event that induced an economic event um, that, you know, the Chinese government overstimulated. Um, in that period. So they were very careful in terms of how they stimulated this time round. And, you know, the result of that, even as we stand here today with all the news and negativity, China is actually one of the rare economies that still have ammunition in, in the background. Um, and that's, you know, seen through the 3% 10-year government bond rate that they still have. On the equity side, as people have sort of um, been scared around some level of tightening inside China in the last sort of, you know, six to nine months and not necessarily seeing as much loosening as we've seen in Western markets, um, then people have started to get, be a little bit gun shy um, and then again taken that money out of Asia and broadly emerging markets and just put it back in and piling it back into growth stocks because both institutions and retail investors face two unique challenges. You've got retail investors that are trying to chase the last bit of return, right? And so they're chasing for the highest growth thing in the market, whether it be Tesla or Apple or, or, or whatnot, right? So, you know, these companies, everyone knows they're expensive, but it's like the gravy train is still showing 0% interest rates. So let's keep going at it. Whereas in Asia, you know, we've seen, you know, the government, and more specifically around China, move to this model of common prosperity, move to this model of adjusted capitalism. And that start, has started to scare people. Um, now, you know, our viewpoint of the Chinese sort of um, environment as it stands today is that, you know, the government's not just blindly going around and attacking every industry, okay? Um, they are targeting industries that are generating super normal profits that is also leading to a social consequence that is negative, like, you know, after school tutoring or some of the, um, the anti-competitive behavior from some of the large juggernauts. So, you know, as money is pulled out, we've seen a, you know, a, obviously a correction, a correction markets, but forward looking, there's definitely a very big opportunity because the dispersion between those, that valuation set in Asian equities versus Western markets is so huge that whatever your view is on the market, um, you know, there is a huge margin of safety in Asian equities. We're not saying that we're at the bottom, 
by any means. That's not what we're saying. We could be right, we could be wrong. I mean, we invest based on valuations. But if you're looking at, you know, developed market equities, Aussie equities, Kiwi equities, um, American equities is up here and Asian equities is here. Well, if we have some sort of market event triggered by super high inflation, super fast increase in interest rates, well, Asian equities has a way larger margin of safety than, you know, Western markets. So if we put, um, you know, the market to the side, your fund, the premium Asia fund, has performed very strongly against the Asian equity Japan, ex-Japan index. Uh, you outperformed by 7% over the last 12 months uh, and 4.3% since uh, over the last five years. So it shows that um, there's still great opportunity for active managers. Um, for the value that you've added over the last couple of years, is this based on a broad, a broad sector call? Is it based on some geographic calls or is it stock specific or, or is it potentially all three? It's, um, it, is, it is all three, um, but I guess all three and those calls need to stem from a, a basic premise. And the basic premise for us is how do we find companies and or sectors which then leads to us digging deeper and finding the companies that have the structural tailwinds that's going to guide them for the next sort of five to 10 years. Okay. Um, and so, you know, for us, if we sit here today and look at the portfolio, um, and this is sort of data ending the end of November, four of our top 10 holdings are semiconductor companies. Now, semiconductor companies have been a, a, a sort of a, a staple of our portfolio for about three years now, okay, for even prior to the pandemic. Now, I don't need to, you know, talk too much about the whole, you know, chip shortages. You see that in, you know, a lot of electronic goods, cars being shipped with only one key, all sorts of, you know, odd things that are happening solely because of this, you know, global ship shortage. And I think what most people don't understand is that it's, it's not, um, you know, a, chip, a global chip shortage is not solved by pressing a button and saying we're going to increase production by 20%. Because the fact of the matter is, if I use an example of an Apple iPhone, um, you've got this scenario where um, you've got uh, uh, Apple finishing their chip that's going to go into the iPhone 14, which is due to launch in September of next year, as they do every year and every September. They actually have to already put the order with TSMC or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corp, which is our largest holding in the, in the Asian fund at the moment, about five and a half percent waiting. They actually have to load that order in with TSMC six months beforehand because it takes a full six months to actually produce the final fab uh, or fabrication, which actually is the chip and they start cutting it up into the individual chips. So four of the companies in our, in our portfolio, semiconductor companies. Now, previously, we've had an overweight to TSMC at almost 10% of the portfolio. So what calls we're actually making in order to try to find an add value is when we look at semiconductors as, you know, as a prime example, because it's you know, four of our top 10 holdings, we think that's a structural sector that has a lot of tailwinds to go. Because we think there's at least another three years where semiconductor companies or fabrication factories, fab factories, still have pricing power. That, that's, you know, that's very, very important. And if you look at companies like Samsung Electronics and TSMC, which is our number one and number two holding, they command the market in terms of the high-tech chips or the smallest chips, which command the highest profit margin. But at the same time, the concern that we have is that they're no longer cheap. 
So again, going back to the answer to the first question that you had was, you know, the margin of safety I talked about. Well, TSMC and Samsung don't offer that margin of safety that we have it, that, that that we had before because they were trading really cheap. Everyone's bought into it, right? Large cap global equity products are invested in TSMC. Yeah. So our fifth, so what we did was we halved our position in TSMC and Samsung, knowing that, okay, they're still gonna control the profit margins, but valuation is no longer cheap, but it's still a great company. And, you know, we still think that they still got a wrong runway of growth, but we've also invested in two other semiconductor uh, companies or fab factories that don't um, produce the same quality or size that TSMC or Samsung do. But because there's a global chip shortage, everyone's just trying to find chips of any size because cars don't need the latest chip. Uh, toasters don't need the latest chip. Microwaves don't need the latest chip. They'll take anything, right? Um, and so for us, you know, number one, we've been fully invested this whole time. Um, and number two, trying to find those structural tailwinds for us and mainly trying to avoid, to be honest, a lot of Southeast Asia, which we think they're still going to face a lot of headwinds and a long time to recovery. We're finding it difficult to find stocks there. Your funds, and speaking of large positions, your, your funds um, exited their position in Alibaba back in November 2020. Um, but I understand that you're starting to reallocate. Um, now, given the size of Alibaba in that overall market, that's a reasonably interesting sort of turn of events. What's the catalyst for coming out and, and now looking to come back in? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, in, in October last year, uh, we started to see some concerns um, around Alibaba's um, uh, business model. Uh, one of the things is, you know, you never fight the government <laughs> in China. Uh, that is a very clear social contract that I think most people don't get um, in China or, or even looking as an outside investor looking at Asia. If you don't understand the sort of the cultural nuances around you don't fight the government, you are going to fail um, uh, cataclysmically. Um, and so what we've what we saw was that um, Jack Ma, who's the founder uh, and principal shareholder of Alibaba, um, got a little bit, how do I put it, a bit too big for his britches um, and started challenging the government um, via the subsidiary that they have called Ant Financial, which is their financing wealth management arm. And what, the, what he projected uh, to the broader market was that we will fill a space in the lending market where the banks don't want to service or don't want to provide finance. Now, if you say that in Australian context, no one will care. The banks will hate you for it. And, you know, then, then, then that's that's a purely capitalistic competition. But when you have 60% of the Chinese banking system actually controlled by the CCP, uh, you just annoyed them greatly. So he started picking fights with people that he can't win. Doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world, you're not the government. Right, and and that's the that's the key that's the key thing. So then the Ant Financial um, listing failed, as we know, um, and then we just said, you know, Alibaba even post the Ant Financial failure, because remember, the Ant Financial was a spin-off, and it sat on Alibaba's balance sheet. Now that valuation has gone from what their IPO proposal was with something about two hundred sixty billion dollars. Um, a lot of fund houses have now downgraded that to almost fifty billion dollars. That's it. That's that's all in financials worth. So sort of, you know, through our own research, we had a similar view. But the difference that we had was that the way that the the market was pricing Alibaba was that it was pricing it on the basis that it would forever have a monopoly in the e-commerce space. 
And the government we knew were trying to promote anti-monopolistic behavior policies. And the biggest problem for Alibaba is that they controlled the market. But the way that they controlled the market was basically telling Nike or Adidas that if you want to sell your stuff on Tmall, um, which is the foreign brand unit of, of, of Alibaba, you can't list it anywhere else. You can't list it on JD.com. You can't list it on, on, on any other um, platform. So, um, so that meant that, you know, if you're Nike, you're going to go, well, Alibaba controls 90% of the market. I have to go with them. So the government came in and started, you know, attacking the sector and saying, you can't have these exclusive distribution agreements. You need to open it up for competition, uh, just to capitalism, come prosperity. And then basically, you know, their share price halved. Um, their share price got to a point where we adjusted our forward forecasts. So at the moment, um, Alibaba trades at about a 15 and a half times uh, financial year 2023 P. Okay. Um, so that's very, very low. Now, we originally felt that names like Alibaba and Tencent, um, they can reasonably trade on a valuation set of anywhere between 25 to about 34 times, okay, um, two years forward earnings. And we think that that's quite reasonable based on their growth trajectory. Um, the problem that we then faced was um, we needed to price in them having a new market dynamic, which is the e-commerce market will still keep growing, but their market share will decrease. So sort of at best, they're going to maintain with maybe a little bit of growth, like low single digit levels of growth. Okay. So just repeating that, that your e-commerce market and penetration is going to go up, but you've got JD.com and a lot of other services now knocking on your door and stealing your market share because you no longer have exclusive distribution agreements. So we repriced Alibaba's base point um, to around 20 times. Okay, so 20 times is where we think that it's cheap. And now it's 15 and a half times. Now, since we bought in, the share price has actually continued to tank even more, right? But none of us are here being investors going, we're picking the highest point or the lowest point. That's not what we do. We're trying to find things that we're going to be invested in for three to five years. So we think that the overall growth for the e-commerce market will still be 10 to 15%. Alibaba will grow at a fraction of that. Um, but at 15 and a half times, we think it's really, really good. So when it gets to 20 times, we might reconsider our position again. But it's all about valuation, right? We remember the golden rule of investing as taught by my CIO is that there is never such thing as a bad company or a bad bond in the case of our, our fixed income fund. There is only ever a bad price that you pay for it. If there is a piece of absolute junk in the market, if it's priced like zero, I'd buy it, right? Because your margin of safety is there. So that's the, you know, the Alibaba story for us. Jonathan, thank you very much. Um, uh, I always love your honesty when it comes to uh, particularly the Asian market and um, and your positions in the fund. So um, thank you. Have a good Christmas and uh, and a very prosperous 2022. Same to your team.